the whole man and say, uh, thank you. And, and I know Jeff and, and Russ don't have the option right now at the moment like I do to be able to say thank you. And, and uh, we do, we thank you guys for your generosity, for your graciousness. Not in one of us that have done what we do because of that kind of thing. Uh, but we certainly love what we do. We love what we do. Uh, we know the God that we serve is worthy of what we do. And we love the people that we give the opportunity to be a part of. And um, with that, let me uh, invite you to go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Mark. So we're going to continue this morning at the book of Mark, chapter 12. Uh, if you are needing uh, a Bible this morning, there should be a Bible on the uh, chairs in front of you. And uh, we'll be looking at page 1147 today. The book of Mark, uh, chapter 12, page 1147. Uh, as you're turning there, let me, uh, let me tell you a story of mine that goes back to uh, when I was still in college, undergraduate. When I graduated high school, my dad uh, graciously gave me a 1992 Mitsubishi BMW, which was his car time, and he passed it on to me as a graduation gift. It was a great car, better than what I uh, deserved. Uh, you know, leather seats are not appropriate for a college freshman. Uh, we just can't appreciate them at the time. Uh, you know, but that's what they had. You know, it was a very nice car, and it was a very good car, very reliable car. Uh, now, I lived in Texas. And uh, Texas has, uh, over uh, a couple of years ago, probably more than a couple, probably 10 or 10 now, they, they passed an emissions law where, where cars had to pass certain tests in order to be inspected uh, and pass inspection. And if they didn't pass that test, you would not get your inspection approved. And in Texas, you know, it's not just the license plate that has the data. In Texas, you have stickers on your windshield that show whether or not you are up to date on your inspection. Well, as I, uh, I got that car, by the way, from Louisiana. Louisiana doesn't have emissions laws. If you're from Louisiana, that probably doesn't surprise you any because it's just a whole different area, right? And, and so I got this car and gave it to Texas. It comes time to get the uh, inspected, and it can't pass the emissions law. It's about burning the oil. And, and, and I couldn't get it. I, I tried several different times. I paid three different times to get it inspected, and it still wouldn't pass. It was the engine that was burning the oil, and, and then each place that got an inspection, they said, you know, you're going to need to rebuild the engine. $3,000. College freshman. Okay, if I hadn't made that clear yet, that's where I was not $3,000 is not something I had. Right? So I, I've got this dilemma now that has risen up. I've got a car that cannot have an inspection, and it eventually expires. Now, now I can't, I can't go and pay three thousand dollars to get my engine fixed, but I'm in need of a new car. But I'm unwilling to go and debt over a car, and I didn't have the money to buy one at the moment. So what did I do? I kept driving the car that I had, right? But, but here's where the dilemma uh, came up, because I would, when I was working at the college, as I would drive to the college every morning, there was a U-turn I had to make under the bridge, right? And this U-turn makes the most sense. If I went anywhere else, I would have to take a long detour. And under this overpass where I would make this U-turn, it was a favorite spot for cops to sit there and flag you down with flashlights if your inspection sticker was inspired. And there was no avoiding. It's not like I could reach out the window and cover it up. I couldn't, once I'm committed to going to the U-turn, I can't go the other way, you know. And so I got stopped. And they informed me that my inspection sticker was inspired. Expired, not inspired. That'd be a whole different problem. Uh, expired. And so I got a ticket for it. I could either get it fixed 
And then I wouldn't have to pay the fine, or I would pay the fine. And so I already knew I couldn't get sick, so I paid the fine. I didn't just get stuck one time. I got stuck three times. I didn't just get one ticket. I got three tickets. And I had to pay three tickets. It appeared now, as a, as a Christian, and by the way, I worked at a Bible college. And so imagine the irony here as I'm driving to work to go work at the Bible college, and I'm showing up with tickets. Again, number three, right? But here's the wrestle that was going on in my mind at the time. I had a dilemma. There's, there's two sets of authorities that were coming into conflict for me, and I, and, I, and I start to wrestle with this. I had the government, and I had God. And so on, on the government side, I, I had the law, the emissions law, that, that I am required to uh, uh, obey so that I can legally drive my car. But I knew that I couldn't pass the test, and I wasn't willing to go in debt over a car. And so now I'm driving a car that's technically illegal. On the other side, I had people advise me, just go to this spot, pay them the money, and they'll slap a sticker on your car. What do you do in the All right? And so, so there now becomes a question between me and God, right? Integrity. Do I do that? Man, it'd be easy. Everybody else does it. In fact, I had Christians telling me to do that. The two authorities. Which, what's my responsibility in this case? Do I obey the government? And so to appease the government, I go and get the sticker? Or do I obey my God and I uphold my integrity and continue to get the government and the sticker? It's a wrestle struggle. What is my responsibility as a follower of Jesus to these two authorities, the government and God? And I think you probably have your own scenario where you come into conflict with that, or maybe it was taxes, or it was, it was maybe you had an expired sticker of some kind, or some kind of issue like that, but she starts to wrestle as a follower of Jesus. What is my responsibility to the government, to the law of this land, and what is my responsibility with God? Do I get to be exempt now because I follow God and He's the higher authority, and so I really don't have to pay attention to the government, or do I have to uh, now jump all into the government and leave God aside when I, when I do that? Responsibility. If you ask that kind of question, you're asking a good and a right question. What is the responsibility of the person who is a follower of Christ when it comes to these two authorities in their life? The government and God. And so this morning, the verses that we're going to look at in Matthew 12, 13 through 17, that's what we encounter. And here's what I want you to see early on uh, is this. Here's where I'm going this morning. Duty to God does not cancel duty to government. And duty to government must not supersede duty to God. Okay, and we're going to unpack that this morning. But your duty to God does not exempt you, or does not cancel your duty for the government. And your duty to the government does not, uh, cannot supersede your duty to God. So let's take a look at this. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 13, we're going to look at uh, these verses this morning. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 13, here's what we find. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him with his own words. So Jesus now is being questioned. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and do not court anyone's favor, because you show no partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But he saw through their hypocrisy and said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
So they brought one, and he said to them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, Give the Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. All right, so, so let's unpack some of what's going on here. So uh, Mark shows us that Jesus is being questioned. So now we've got these two groups here, right? These two groups of people that come and question Jesus. We've got the Pharisees and the Herodians. Here's what you need to know about these two groups. In any other circumstance, they're enemies. They do not get along. They are religiously different, and they're politically different. So you've got the Pharisees, who were kind of your protectors of the Jewish religious system. These were the, the, the people who guarded the temple practices and made sure that the Jews had the opportunity to do what Jews do religiously. And so they were kind of the representatives between Roman government and the Jewish people. They were conservative, theologically speaking, and they did not like the Roman government. They did not believe the Roman government had a right to rule over the Jewish people. Now, the Herodians, you might see it in their name, Herod, right? King Herod, the, one of the rulers of them. The Herodians were people who were faithful to the Roman government. They uh, agreed with the Roman government's right to rule over the Jewish people. In fact, they were loyal and they supported it. Theologically, they would have been more loyal. So you've got these two groups. For any other service, they would, you wouldn't see them pairing up together. But to trap Jesus, because now the enemy of my enemy, right? That phrase, right? Now they're pairing up together. And so they tell you that to trap Jesus. And so you've got these two groups, and they try to trap them, and they say this. In verse 14, they say, When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality, but you teach the word down the point of the truth. You know what? That's a load of preliminary. These guys did not believe what they were just saying. They did not believe that Jesus was a truthful teacher. They're out to track him. They, they don't believe some of the things that come out of They've been challenged by it. They've been threatened by it. But for the moment, they're going to flatter and so, as they come up to him, uh, they're, they're flattering him, and they say, uh, we know that you speak the truth. We know that you don't care about what other people think, because you don't show partiality. And so, they're buttering him up. All right. So, here's the question. Taxes. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay, or should we? Framed another way. Do we have a right to our money, or does the government have a right to our money? Who owns the money? Here's the money. Remember the two Jews, Pharisees, anti-Roman government. They don't like the Roman government. They don't believe the Roman government has any right to rule over the Jewish people. So if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, now they're upset. And they're going to spread that, and they're going to make the people upset. This guy, this particular person you guys are following, this guy who you think is so great, he's in favor of the taxes that are imposed on you that are such a burden. But Jesus says, no. You don't have to pay taxes. He's an insurrectionist. He's going to throw, over, try to overthrow the government. Let's stop him now. He's just like all those others that have come before you. See, so he's kind of in a, in a dilemma where he can't really answer them without being in trouble. But here's the thing about the Jewish people in taxes. Uh, they, they already paid taxes, right? So they already had a tax that they paid to the temple that was instituted as part of their Old Testament law, part of the law of Moses, where they had to pay a tax to the temple. And that was how God used uh, that, that money that they paid to the temple was how God provided for and cared for the Levites. 
how they were patriots, such as how they married it, because that particular group of Israelites, the Levites, had no land of their own, and, and so they were in service to the Lord. And so part of the tax and temple was to cover them and to help them. So the Jews already paid back. If you were faithful Jew, you're paying a temple tax. On top of that, they now had to pay the Roman tax, the whole tax. You just had to pay the same you're under the government of the world, the Romans are benefiting from this service. And there was three, uh, there was a couple different responses. So there was a group called the Zealots, right? These were these were rebels. They didn't they didn't pay at all. These were the people who tried to overthrow the Roman government. Then you got the uh, Pharisees. The Pharisees they paid it, but they were they were un, uh, uh, they didn't do so voluntarily. They were not paid at all. They they did so with protest. Then you got the Herodians. The Romans paid it, and they did so with great joy. Because they were so loyal to this Roman government. And so the question is now, do we have to pay these taxes? Who owns our money? So now we go into verse 15, and Jesus sees right through them. He sees right through them, and he says, why are you trying to tax me? Why are you trying to tax me? See, Jesus, Jesus is so wise. Like, he, he's not going to fall, uh, you know, uh, into this trap. He's, he's not sweating bullets at this moment, wondering how he's going to answer. He sees right through them. Why are you trying to A denarius is a, is a silver stick. It was a Roman stick. It was about one day's worth of money. You work the day, you got a denarius. And, and this was the, the, the coin that was used to pay the tax. So Jesus would say, bring me that piece of money. Bring me the, the coin that you use to pay a tax. And let me look at it. You see, this is smart. Because as he goes on, so they, they bring him this coin. Interesting that they would have had one. Okay, considering it's a group. You wouldn't be surprised that the Herodians have one, but if you're in such protest of the government, how readily would the Pharisees have one of them? Right? Okay, so he says, now looking at it, it's a few images on it. Just like our, so, uh, our coin, we have images of, of people on them. Uh, their coin has images of people on it. He looks at it for two images. He looks at two See, now on that denarius, uh, on the plane, they had a picture of, of one of the Caesars. And, and on that, they had this inscription in it, and it basically pointed to the fact that they believed Caesar was a god, that he was divine. You know, the Caesar was a god, they said Caesar. Caesar is the masterful god of Jesus the Lord. He says in verse 17, give the Caesar what it is, which is a god. And we translation say, render the Caesar what it is, render the god what it is. But it means the same thing. But what is Jesus doing here? You see, because he, he's looking at this image, uh, uh, this coin, and he says, Caesar's image is on there. Therefore, it belongs to Caesar. Right? So he's drawing a principle now, and he's saying, if someone's image is on something, that thing that bears the image belongs to the person whose image is on The coin has Caesar's image on it. It says, uh, it belongs to Caesar. Right? But look at that second part of the statement. Get to Caesar what it seems to be good to God what is God. What is that saying from the Jews? All the way back in Genesis, when Moses is telling us in the book of Genesis how God created it, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he says he created man and Caesar in the image of God. In Humanity, they, God's image. 
It doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. You can't. God did You were created with God's image, stamped on you. And that's part of what makes up uh, humanity, what makes us unique, is that we bear God's image. And so Jesus says, the point of being in is the one who sees it. But give to God what is just. The implication is, humanity is wrong. Thus, so, so the people there, the Herodians would have had no trouble giving the Caesar what is Caesar's, but they probably didn't believe in the image of God on humanity. So that part was lost in them. But the Pharisees, you know, they should have gotten that because they are scholars of the Old Testament. These guys are the religious shepherds of the Jewish people. They should have understood. They should have gotten this. In fact, their lives should have already been devoted to God as shepherds of Israel. And yet they ask the question, now what is my money for? I want to show you something. Paul picks up this, this same idea in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 16, when he's talking about the judgment. Because remember, the question is this. What's my responsibility? As a Christ follower, what is my responsibility when it comes to the government and when it comes to God? How do those two mix? How do they interact? How do they, they operate together? So look at me at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Paul says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authority. Keep in mind, Paul's still writing when the Jews are under Roman rule. Okay? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except by God's appointment. And the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers cause no fear for good conduct but for them. Do you desire not to share authority? Then do good. And you For it is God's uh, commendation, sorry. For it is God's service for your good. But if you do wrong, be in fear. For it does not bear the sword in vain. It is God's service. For administering retribution and wrongdoing. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also for Christ as your servant. For this reason, you also pay taxes. You are not taxes. For the authorities of God, for those who govern. Pay everyone what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. See the cause here. To the, uh, a group of people in the heart of the Roman Empire. A church that was there who was also wrestling with what is our responsibility for this government. Now, now, now mind you, this government, this Roman government, these people had no say in, in who their Caesar was. It was certainly, this wasn't a Christian candidate they had. They didn't get to vote on which candidate was the most Christian or who, who lined up with their belief. There was no evangelical candidate, that's for sure. There's no First Amendment right, because that's something that, that, that most nations don't have. Like, there's no freedom of religion. In fact, what was going on in the Roman government, especially by the time Paul was writing, and then and after that, Christians started to get persecuted by Rome. Because Rome didn't understand the Christians. In fact, the, the Romans started to persecute them for at least four reasons that we know of. One, the Romans thought that the Christians uh, were atheists. They said, well, how is that so? Because to the Romans, the, the Christians worshipped a God that was invisible. No idol thing, you know, that they don't worship idols. It turned out in the way to Whereas the Romans had all these gods that they could see. Christians didn't have that. So they must be atheists because they don't believe in any of the gods that we have in this country. The other thing they believe is that Christians, they were antisocial. 
They didn't participate in the Roman game. That, that group of people there anti-Christian. These next two, you might understand a little more. They, they believed that Christians were cannibals. You know, as that whole eat my flesh and drink my blood thing is being said. Their practice is communion. How can these people eat the blood and the flesh of this person? They didn't understand it, so they must be cannibals. Of course, these people are incestuous and marrying within the family.
the government needs to get outside the building. And so you see, um, where, where we're going with this this morning is, in general, in general, when we ask the question, what is my role as a follower of Christ when it comes to the government and when it comes to God? We want to answer it a lot of times with an either or. But it's a both or. It's a both or. I subject myself to the government. And as I subject myself to the government, I'm subjecting myself to God. The only time the either or comes into place is in those exceptions. But in general, both and. You cannot be a follower of Christ and be rebelling against your judgment, I mean, against your government. Now, mind you, I'm not talking about a case where there's an exception, okay? I'm talking in general. You cannot be a follower of Christ, rebel against your judgment, and be okay with God. You understand? You are in sin if you are not subjecting yourself to the government. Because then you're not subjecting yourself to God's sin. That's your responsibility. And so, going back to what Jesus says, he says, hey, there's a place for both. See, he doesn't, you know, we, we take separation of church and sin, but that's not really even the point that Jesus is making. Because, again, most churches don't have separation of church and sin. And yes, we benefit from church, separation of church and state here in America, but in reality, that's not how God intends us to operate. Separation. Because if you serve in politics, you don't set aside God and your relationship with the Lord. You cannot do that. If you are someone who serves as God's servant in law enforcement and any kind of government position, you must bring your relationship with God into that. You cannot separate. We do ourselves a disservice, and we do Christ a disservice when we separate. It's not just a Christian society. It's not just a private thing that you hold to Sunday that our member wants to say. Your relationship with Christ should infiltrate everything you do. Every career, every job you hold, every relationship you have, your relationship with Christ should take You cannot separate the two. So Jesus says there's actually a place for both. You get to God, uh, see what the service of the You get to government what you're owed and what the service of faith provides you. Whether you agree or disagree, whether you like this candidate or not, whether you have voted for him or her or not. In general, when it comes down to it, unless the government is required to do something that violates God, you owe them for their services. And it may be a burden. Just like the Jewish people, they have taxes that they pay to the temple, and then on top of that, they had to pay the Roman government. It's a burden. Because benefiting from the services of their government. And Jesus is recognizing that authority. He's not approving of the Roman government the way they necessarily operate or the things they do, but he's acknowledging the authority that government has that God has given them. You give them what they want, and don't forget, you give God what you want. There's a, uh, a period of church history, it's one of my favorite when I study church history. Uh, it started around the first century, kind of after the, the apostles, those are the guys that walked around with Jesus and allowed him to get our, our New Testament. Once they kind of died off, and then uh, people rose up, and the next generations were teaching their, taking their teachings and starting to teach them. Um, there was a period around the first century to about the second and third century, and there was a group of people who rose up in churches that called the apologists. You know, so apologetics, we talk about apologetics and defend the faith. But these guys were different than the 
apologetics for that we say that today and the way we do apologetics today. The way we do apologetics today, for the most part, we come to you and we try to reason with you and then show you how reason should lead you to faith. But they actually started with faith. There's certain things that are just true. And now they go from there. And you remember those four things that I threw out there that the Roman government was accusing the Christians of, that they were the atheists, they were antisocial, that they were cannibals, or that they were incestuous? Well, as those concerns continued to circulate, uh, this group of apologists came up, and they were, they were writing. And their writings were going to the church, and their writings were possibly going to the Roman government, trying to explain an answer, give an answer to each of these accusations. Explaining why these are not true accusations, why they're unfounded, why Christians are being wrongly persecuted just because they bear the name Christian, and how they should be tried uh, tried, uh, fairly. And so, here's one of these guys, one of the more popular ones, his name is Justin Martyr. And uh, I don't know if the last one has any significance for that. But he uh, he wrote this. He wrote this. And everywhere we, speaking of Christians, more readily than all men, Christians more than anyone else, endeavor to pay for those appointed by you to pass both the way of truth. As we have been taught by him, that's Jesus, for at that time some came to him and asked him, if one ought to pay tribute to Jesus, he answered, tell me who's in this prison for him there. And these are the verses we're looking at today. And they said, Jesus. And again he answered them, nobody said for the Caesar the same thing to and to God the same thing to to God alone we render worship. Okay, that separates them from all the other Roman citizens who also worship Caesar. Whence, to God alone we worship. And we don't worship Caesar. We worship God alone. But in other things, we gladly serve him. Okay, we worship Caesar. I'm sorry, we worship God, not Caesar. God alone is who we worship. That sets us apart. But in everything else, we gladly serve him. The government, acknowledging you as kings and rulers of men, and praying that with your spiritual power, you be found to possess all things that are sacred. That's how the Christians were encouraged to end up during that time, when they were under a government who was wrongly accusing and making things that didn't understand them and were persecuting them. Mind you, much more than we are persecuted today by our government. We've not yet encountered the great They in this environment did not have freedom of religion. No first amendment. They didn't even say that the Caesar there was no there was no evangelical party. There was no particular publicly identified party for why we say this. And yet their attitude is this God has established their faith. And so do whatever you want to do. We will not worship people. We worship God alone. So we just can't do that. Christianity cannot be primarily identified with any political religion, any political party. Christianity is primarily identified by identification with Christ. If your Christianity and relationship with Christ cannot work and be translated into another culture with different governments, you are practicing it wrong. We cannot, must not, should not align ourselves first and foremost with any kind of political Bear our allegiance higher than that to God. 
and get closer to Him, the higher they will get to us about we've got a relationship in the way that we talk to people. It's a Christianity, it's not a medical thing. It's not a, a, a European thing. It's not a Canadian thing. It's not a Latino thing. Christianity says all nations, all things. And if we start to identify our Christianity and our relationship with Christ with our American patriotism, with a political party or anything like that, we are missing it. And we are wrong in the church of the First and foremost, everything else comes after us. And Jesus would say, when it comes to the church of the when you when you find yourself questioning how do I respond in a situation where these two authorities that God has placed over me, government, and, and uh, God himself, when they come in the conflict, what's my role? What's my responsibility? Do I have a responsibility? And if I become a Christian, can I just stop following the government? And he said, no. Because the duty to God does not cancel out the duty of government. You don't have permission to automatically become a member. When you become a Christian, because God does not intend. And yet, at the same time, your duty to the government must never supersede the duty to God. I think some of us in our culture are probably more accustomed to that than we are. Because we so much get involved in political politics and we need to hide our relationship with God. I'm not saying we can't be involved in politics or we shouldn't be involved in We should, but that's what God's called us. Literally, we're God's agents. But when we set aside our relationship with God and pursue that separately, or we pack that on, as just another way to get close in a certain constituency, it's not always our fault. We have a responsibility to him. When they come in conflict, God wins. But the duty to God to God is not cancel out the duty to God, and the duty to the government must not supersede the duty to them. As a follower of Christ, we need to be wiser about how we speak about our government at all levels. Law enforcement, particularly in the hearing of people who are not following the truth. It's one thing if you sit down and try to talk to you guys and stuff that the person views you as, but when you are in the hearing of a person who is not a follower of Christ, and you are a follower of Christ, and you've made that public, you claim it, and you start speaking by condemning them, by judging them in ways that are not appropriate for you and I to speak about government officials, we are undermining. Because we're going to face restrictions ourselves. We're constitutionally threatened to this. But as Christians, as followers of Christ, we've got to be wiser about the duty. Or maybe this morning you are someone who says, you know what, I'm not a follower of Christ, I don't have to listen to this, I can rebel against government all I want. Yep, you can. You'll have to pay scrutiny on the government, and you'll have to answer to the law enforcement uh, in that. That's clearly what Paul is saying. But let me say something to you about that. You're giving your allegiance to somebody. You're giving your devotion and dedication to somebody else. Government's your enemy. Government can be overthrown. Government can fall. Ultimately, every government will fall. They will not stand. You're giving yourself to something that's temporary and only designed to endure and long, however long that is. As a follower of Christ, you give your allegiance to a person who is your enemy. A person who will always person who will always bring perfect justice. A person who will win. A 
for you too. People, God, you've done a great thing. You've got a good message. A message that's better than anything else. A message that's, that's good news, really, because it speaks to our hearts and to our lives. It speaks to salvation. It speaks to us being rescued from ourselves and from sin and from destruction. God, and it is truly good message. We believe that when people place their trust in Christ and when, when people become followers of Christ, we believe that they are going to be better off. Because they may be, you know, they know by them. We know that the deepest longing of all of us is to be back in relationship with you. So God, we pray for those in our lives now, those in our workplaces. And if you just think about a few of those now, we don't know Christ, those in our families. Those are schools and our classes. Think about some of those who maybe don't know Christ. God, we lift them up and we pray that you would open up doors and open up hearts. And God, I pray for, for those who might be invited. And that they would not just see this as, as an opportunity to come to a, to a church and try something out, but they would see a relationship that they have an opportunity to be in. And God, as they draw close to the person invited them, would they see you in them? And as they do that, might they uh, maybe choose to come to this church or go to any other church that's preaching your gospel. That would you open up their hearts. Would you open up their eyes and to reveal yourself to them. Teach them what Christ has done for them because of your greatness. To draw them into the life that you have to We also others this morning, I pray that you would uh, continue to stir their thoughts this week so that they might think about who it is in their sphere. And you want them to invite, not because they you just want them to come to church, but God, because they need to know Christ. Because they need to be a part of the church where they can be loved, where they can be connected, where they can be faithful, and where they can experience your life for them. Give us a bigger vision than ourselves. Give us a bigger vision than our church. Give us your vision. And open up their doors and say, Hey, if you're able, you can stand and I will. God is good, and God is wise. His wisdom far surpasses any of us. He knows what he's doing. He does not mess up. He trusts him. So make yourself.